everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to help give insight into the tactical side of Major League Soccer. I'm your host, Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how's life out there in Florida? Oh, it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous day. Everybody from the Super Bowl has found their way back to their airplanes <laughs> and they're leaving. And I am set up. I've got two games tonight for CONCACAF Women's Olympic Qualifiers. So it's good. Life is good, man. What's up with you? Uh, just living out here in Arizona. Yeah, beautiful weather. Although I'm guessing you're getting some of that down there in Florida, too. Yeah. Beautiful weather. And, and I'm excited to talk soccer. We got a, a great show on tap today. It's going to be a really fun show because we want to analyze the remaining six coaches that have either joined or rejoined MLS from other leagues. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm I'm pumped, Joe. No, and it's a continuation sort of of our, our intro episode last week where we talked about Inter Miami head coach Diego Alonso coming to MLS from Monterey. On this episode... And- yeah, and on this episode, we're going to be able to dive in a little bit more because we heard you guys and we knew that you wanted more. We wanted to give you just a little taste <laughs> before we dropped some more info on you. Just a little taste. That's exactly right. We took a small bite last week and we're taking a, a decidedly larger bite this week. <laughs> we're going through six new coaches. NYCFC's Ronnie Dyla, Orlando City's Oscar Pereja, Houston's Tab Ramos, Chicago's Rafael Vicky, Montreal's Derry Henry, and Nashville's Gary Smith. And what we did is we kind of just split them up, right? So I took a few, you took a few, and we made sure that we dug into watching film and seeing how these coaches and a lot of former player now players now coaches have played uh, previously to see maybe how they're going to play here in MLS. Yeah, and, and each one of us has researched separate people, like you're saying. So one of us has more information than the other, which I think is going to make for some really interesting tactical discussion, because I'm curious about the people you researched, and I know you're curious about the ones that I've researched as well. And hopefully it gives us good back and forth, right, Joe, that we can listen to what the other person says and then create a discussion and a, a dialogue around what the tendencies of these coaches are and maybe how it'll translate or how it might not translate to MLS. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about how much we have to get through. So let's go ahead and get started. Let's do it. All right. So first up, we have Ronnie Dyla, NYCFC head coach. Uh, this is one of the players, one of the coaches, excuse me, that I researched coming into MLS. Uh, Ronnie Dyla is Norwegian. He was a, a player and assistant coach at his first club in Norway. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of his background. Even, even at the end of his playing career, he was a head coach, an assistant coach rather. So he has coaching in his blood and his man, his Celtic teams. I went back and watched some of their matches were, were really fun to watch. I know he got fired after not so great success in, in European competitions, but man, his, his teams in Scotland were really fun to watch. Ooh, tell, I want I want to know what, what did you like about it? So, a lot of the movement that I noticed from from these teams that Dyla was coaching was in wide areas. And I think that's that's not necessarily something that's wholly unique, but he played out of a 4-2-3-1 almost exclusively and his time in Celtic. And I, I do believe that we're going to see that here in NYCFC as well. But he played out of that 4-2-3-1 and the movement in wide areas was extremely detailed. They didn't create numerical overloads like I don't know how much of Seattle Sounders you watched last season, Jordan, but a lot, a lot. of times, a lot, she says, a lot of times Brian Schmetzer had his, his outside players creating like 4v3 overloads on the wings. He out of that same 4-2-3-1 shape that Dyla likes to use. Dyla's wide movements are less about creating numerical overloads. And I think a little bit more about trying to move cleverly with those players to get in into detailed spaces behind the opposition. So we'll see a lot of rotations between fullbacks, between those wingers on the outside of the 4-2-3-1. And then I 
either a central midfielder or the attacking midfielder. There's a lot of rotations between those three players to, to have the ball move forward on that wing and disorganize the opposition. Are you talking about the winger maybe coming in a little bit more centrally to allow that overlap or the space really in the wide channel for the outside back to then utilize? And then the winger has this little pocket of space, maybe let's say they're playing against a, a 4-3-3 right next to that single pivot, that that holding midfielder play, player that maybe the winger can utilize that space, but also have options left and right when attacking goal. No, that's exactly right. It's all about creating options. And, and Dyla likes to use inverted wingers. So that's, it's perfect for those guys to come inside as the fullback maybe pushes high and wide, which is something that happens a lot. And we'll see with NYCFC this season. Anton Tinnerholm, Ronald Matarita, and their new Icelandic signing at left back, as well as Joe Scally on the right, the youngster for the U.S. youth national teams. Those players are going to be called to push high and wide so that those wingers can tuck in. And then the third player coming over, whether that's Maxi Morales or whether that's Keaton Parks or one of the other midfielders for NYCFC, they're going to be allowed to roam over to that side and try to strategically place themselves somewhere where they can disrupt the the opposition's defensive setup and then move the ball forward down the wing from there. So when you're talking about this NYCFC team and you're looking at a new coach coming in, what are some of the interesting things you've heard from him that he wants to come in and maybe implement right away? Dyla is is from everything that I've seen and heard. I listened to a couple couple interviews with him. He's a really energetic guy and he wants to bring energetic soccer to NYCFC. And I think that's something that, that NYCFC fans are going to be used to. Uh, in Patrick Vieira and Dome Torrent, they both played pretty high tempo, up tempo, not necessarily direct, but, but energetic soccer. Um, but Dyla's going to come in and he's really going to stick to that 4-2-3-1. Where Dome Torrent was, was a kind of a shapeshifter. Uh, Ronnie Dyla prefers to just tweak things slightly in that 4-2-3-1. Maybe instead of sending the attacking midfielder out wide, he'll send the central midfielder or push a center back up a little bit higher. He likes to play out of that 4-2-3-1 pretty consistently. Um, and it's okay sometimes to see control drop into a 4-4-2 block and allow the, op- the opposing team to control possession and then hit on the counter. That's not something that Dome Torrent was really comfortable with doing. So I think that's one of the main differences that we're going to see from NYCFC this season. A fun note as he coached Virgil van Dyke at Celtic. That, okay, Jordan, I think we've talked about before off mic how, how much of a geek I am about center backs. Uh, and if you follow me on Twitter, any of our listeners, you guys know, back. you guys know how much I obsess about center backs. It's, I feel like it's every other tweet, even though I know it's not. Um, <laughs> I'd like it to be every other tweet. Maybe I can up my, up my quota a little bit, but he did coach That's Virgil van Dyke. It's, it's high. I don't tweet that much. So, so maybe I can make it happen. I don't know. Um, but he coached Virgil van Dyke at Celtic. And this is going back and watching old film of Virgil van Dyke. First of all, it's just a lot of fun to see the player he's become and, and the similarities that were in his game even three, four, five years ago. But getting to watch Virgil van Dyke in this system really makes me think that Ronnie Dyla is going to work with these NYCFC center backs. He was a center back himself as a player, and you can see it in how he uses the center backs. He likes to push them high, allow them to have some fun in the attack, which I think fun might really encapsulate Dyla's style, at least at least from my eyes. He wants those center backs to push up and have a real impact in the attack, which allows them to to truly get involved with those wide attacking combinations, push forward, have some fun. And so you look at NYCFC's players here. They have Maxime Cheneau, Kyans, Sebastian Ibiaga, James Sands. These guys are going to be so key to NYCFC's attacking structure this season. 
That's really interesting. And I think that's a spot, a positional a position in MLS that can use that work, right? It, not known as a defensive league. Really, this isn't a, a league where there's a lot of goals scored, right? That means there's maybe a lot of mistakes in the back line with organization, with maybe implementing a little bit of that fun and ability to get forward in the attack. So I, I like that. I think it'll I think be fun. Be I truly do think it'll be fun to watch. You have some of these guys pushing higher up the field. Maxime Cheneau, I remember there was a play against the New York Red Bulls last season at Red Bull Arena where Cheneau pushed forward and he, he pirouetted and he spun and he kept driving forward and that gave a glimpse of his attacking ability in that moment. So he's already a guy that can push forward under Dyla. We've seen it before and I'm guessing he'll have even more of a responsibility to do that this season. James Sands as well. He's a positional kind of Irregularity. I'm not personally sure whether he's a defensive midfielder or a center back or where exactly he'll be called to be used this season in Dallas 4-2-3-1, but he's another guy who obviously has some attacking skill if he is typically played as a midfielder. So he has some attacking skill. He can push forward, look at his options in front, and then make a, make a smart pass from there. And I think those guys especially are going to really thrive under Dallas this season. I like that. I like the word fun used, too. Now that we've kind of dug deep into Ronnie Dalla for NYCFC, Jordan, let's move on to the first coach that you researched, Orlando City's Oscar Pereja. Oscar Pereja, many people know him if you're a loyal MLS watcher, and he's been around the league for a long time. The Columbian International played the majority of his career at FC Dallas, got traded to them when they were the Dallas Burn, which I think is such a fun MLS fact <laughs> and such a great name, right? Great Dallas name. Burn. Uh, and so there he had about 189 games and 52 assists. And I think that number speaks to the players that he's brought in. So I want I wanted to say that number just because he is an assist man, right? That, that's what he was known for. As <laughs> just a like player, us. Right? <laughs> he fits him perfect on this podcast. <laughs> so uh, when he retired, he became an assistant coach and then really got his first coaching gig at the Colorado Rapids from 2012 to 2014 and then got pulled back south, back to Dallas, head coach 2015. And I think the thing that makes him really interesting for this Orlando City squad is he took that Dallas squad in 2015 from missing the playoffs for two years in a row to leading them not only being top of the West, but runners up in supporter shield, something that I'm sure opened the eyes of Orlando City and said, hey, this is a coach who can turn programs around. And that's going to come in handy given where Orlando City have finished in Major League Soccer the last few years, right? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I think that's exactly one of the big reasons why Oscar Pereja is the coach for Orlando City. Can he turn around this team with a lot of talent and a lot of ability to be these front runners in the East? So uh, his he was last at Tijuana. He was there about 12 months uh, 49 games, but it just didn't go the way that they were hoping it would go with him there. So now he's back in MLS and Oscar Perea, from what I remember of him being here in MLS and watching some games uh, from both Dallas and from Tijuana is he likes to play in a 4-2-3-1 and playing with those two holding midfielders, a double pivot. But one of the things I like about his tactics is he'll push 
a and it was the right sided outside back typically using the two holding midfielders to be more playmakers uh, in the build up from this rotation and they bring one of the holding midfielders on the right side to an outside back position that pushes the outside back on the right side higher up the field and then you're playing with a one man pivot centrally so that opens up just those overloads on in the channels that's something that idea of sliding one of those central midfielders out a little bit wider and a little bit deeper that at first when i was thinking about that i've seen i've seen a number of teams do that tactic over the last couple of seasons at first i was a little confused by it right because it seems like you're taking and rotating someone there for almost no reason because there's already a defender there in that spot. But then I had a coach tell me that the idea is to sort of get one of your preferred playmakers on the ball with a little bit more space. And so I'm wondering, Jordan, you've seen this. I'm wondering if that is that sort of what Oscar Pereja is trying to do by moving one of those midfielders a little bit wider, a little deeper, but to give them more time and space on the ball. It's exactly right, Joe, because when you bring one of your holding midfielders over to to the wing, really an outside back position, you're giving them an opportunity to spray the ball around the field in a higher up position or just exploiting then different passing channels. And one of those passing channels that I think they're going to want to exploit is there could be a, a way to break one, maybe two lines of playing that direct ball from your holding mid who shifted over into the front runner, into that nine or false nine in what most likely Dom Dwyer is going to be occupying that space. And one of the things I think works with the way that they, if they decide to play this kind of tactic is then they've have all these playmakers underneath that, um, Orlando has brought in a lot of South American flavor here in the last few months as they have Mauricio Perea who came in uh, last year and didn't play that many games. And I think excited for him to get fit and get healthy because he could be one of those attacking midfielders that just sits under Dwyer and starts to spray in Nani on, on the left side and use him as a little bit more of a playmaker. But I, they also just signed a Brazilian in Urso, and I'm really excited to, to watch him play. And sorry, just one note on Perea. If they're moving one of those two holding midfielders a little bit wider, would that allow Perea maybe as an attacking midfielder to come to come a little deeper and occupy some of that central space and, and sort of dictate possession from those areas? I think so. I, I think as an attacking midfielder, when you want to first leave that passing channel open to your nine so you can break as many lines as possible and then come underneath and almost scoop up that layoff play then you can have a potential one two with your front runner you can spring in both wingers and try to get them to a space where they're then attacking the end line and crossing it in with there is three players now at least in the box in a dangerous area i think it's a place where Pereira can come in and really start to feel like he's dictating how this team is going forward. Interesting. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. Sorry. Back to Urso. So they bring in Urso, a Brazilian center midfielder. And what I'm excited about him is he is not only this gritty, tough nosed central midfield defender, but he likes to get forward. So when I've seen him play for Corinthians most recently down in Brazil, he has been more of a box to box and eight, as we would say, a midfielder who's willing to put in the work, not only with that late run getting in the box, but also can uh, get back and defensively do some work. So if they play in the, that two holding midfielders, 
role, I think he would be the midfielder with the more freedom and the more ability to maybe slide out wide and play make. Or if he's the one staying central, then there's a rotation where he can join the play and that wide center midfielder who slid out to the outside channel can then come back centrally, hold the holding midfielder spot and let Urso get up the field. I'm excited for the combination between Urso and Juan, the outside back for Orlando City, who proved last year that he wants to get up and down the wing. And he is a player who has some skill on in that channel. And I think those two are going to bring just a, a fun flair to this Orlando City team. And uh, it's one of the things that I think in watching Orlando City, they've they know I think they're a squad who's going to really thrive off that um, almost not feeling pressure to be perfect, but like feeling the game out a little bit more. And that's perfect for Oscar Perea. I think he doesn't want to force his team to do things that they're uncomfortable with. So providing them an opportunity to play within themselves and to use some of those clever rotations in wide areas as a deliberate tactic that they can use to break down and get in behind the opposing defense. They can use those things sometimes and then they can also just sit back in a little bit of a, in a, little bit of a more structured defensive shape and then try to win the ball and push forward from there. So we've gone through New York City FC. We've gone through Orlando City. Jordan, who's up next for us? Let's go down south. Let's go to H-Town. Ooh. Houston Dynamo. Tab Ramos. Yeah. What do you know about Tab, Joe? I've watched Tab Ramos's teams play as the, the former U.S. U-20 head coach and, and youth national team technical director. I've watched Tab Ramos's teams pretty closely, especially over the last couple of years, thinking specifically of that 2019 U.S. U-20 World Cup. Ramos has been in charge of the U-20s for six years. He's been to three consecutive U-20 World Cup quarterfinal appearances. He has experience coaching these, these highly talented youth players. I love that, Joe. And I think that's one of the things people always note about Ramos. But like, how is that going to translate? Because it's a totally different setup, right? When you're coaching at the international level versus day in, day out, you're with a club. Uh, I just I'm curious about that transition. It's so different, right? And you have some some very excellent insight into this as well. But the transition from moving to spending limited time with youth players and, and having a lot of important games to having more time to prepare in the club environment, you have more time to get out on the training ground and to actually work through some tactical ideas with your players. So if anything, I'm excited to see how, how Tab Ramos really works full time with, with a group of players. So you Houston, think it's going to elevate his already, like he's so well known for what he's done and it's only going to be elevated when he's able to have a team and his hands in it every single day. Yes and no. Yes, from a tactical side, I think he could do some some fun things with this Houston Dynamo roster, but no in the fact that especially his most recent U20 group was just so good. I mean, Tim mm. Weah, you had Tim Weah, Sebastian Soto up top, Paxton Pomacal, Serginio Dest, De La Fuente. Like, I mean, I can go through all of these names, and these are the guys that we're looking through to come into the current U.S. national team roster. I mean, we just saw Ulianes play for the national team against Costa Rica. He's a Tab Ramos guy that was on that U20 team and played a big part coming off the bench for the World Cup. So talent-wise, I think he's got a little less to work with relative to his youth national team days. But tactics-wise, I think that could be a really fun way to dig into this Houston Dynamo team. All right. Well, when you're looking at what Tab has done tactically, how does it fit in with this squad with some big let's just say front runners that Houston Dynamo has. They have big front runners, right? And and those guys there's a chance they could get sold before this this 
season actually we've starts. Been that. We've been hearing that for months. It's Maybe true. Years, years, years <laughs> Jordan. We've been hearing it for a while. So not to put all my eggs in that bas- in that basket, but uh, we've got Alberto Lisa and Mauro Menotas, the two big headlining attackers, and then Darwin Quintero recently brought in from Minnesota United as well. But I got a chance to talk with Tab Ramos earlier this offseason, and we just sat down and talked tactics over the phone. Tab Ooh. likes to describe his teams as possession-oriented, as pressing-oriented teams, and that's Literally every coach will want to tell you that. They'll really restrain themselves sometimes to try to give you something different. But that's the baseline. But I think with Ramos, it really comes down to risk. A lot of what he likes to do is based off of allowing his players to be in high-risk, high-reward situations because he recognizes that as a player, that's sometimes more fun, right? Sometimes that's more of a fun time to go out there and you actually enjoy playing. Maybe you get exposed. Maybe you have really huge successes in the attacking third. But that's something that Ramos is really focused on. I just think that it's true on the soccer field as it's true in in life, right? Like you got to take risks. And I think that's one of the things that's going to make Ramos in this Houston squad a really good combination. I totally agree. I think just looking at some of the players for Houston we talked about earlier, Alberto Lee in particular, he's a big like make it or go home kind of guy. He likes to dribble, take people on, get high and see what happens from there. And that fits in perfectly with one of the main tactics that that Tab detailed to me and then also that what was observable from his U20 teams. He really likes to either out of a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 have his wide players push high. His mm-hmm. wingers naturally are already going to be higher up the field, but his fullbacks also sometimes like to push high and they'll have those two-man combinations on the wings. Less so like the three-man combinations that I talked about with Dyla. These are more two, trying to get 2v1s with maybe a fullback and just combine and play quickly around those outside players. For Houston, they're going to try to get the wingers high and fullbacks Adam Lundqvist on the left and Zarek Valentin on the right probably high to have those combinations in wide areas. Good experience on the outside backs for this Houston squad, but I want to talk you, you mentioned a player that has had a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about him as he was in Minnesota, maybe not getting the playing time he thought, or wasn't going the way he thought it was. Now he gets a fresh start, right? Darwin Quintero goes down to Houston. How is he going to fit in this? Do you think he's going to fit into this way, the way that Tab Ramos wants to play? It's This is a really interesting situation because we just don't know. Mm. Quintero was benched last season by Adrian Heath for Minnesota in their two biggest games of the season, the U.S. Open Cup Final against Atlanta United and their one playoff game against the LA Galaxy. And and one of the definite reasons for that was his overall lack of defensive effort. So if Ramos is truly going to lean into this whole, I really want to press and that's really important to my team thing, then maybe Quintero is either going to have to A, step up his game or B, enjoy sitting on the bench. Um, But if Ramos is willing to give a little bit, and this is something he and I talked about. He he is willing to accommodate some of these players, especially a guy like Quintero that has genuine attacking talent and can make plays in the attack. He is willing to accommodate slightly, but it's going to be a give and take, right? It has to be in order to make this system work as the Dynamo push forward, attack in wide areas, and then either counter press to win the ball back or just simply start up a high press from an opposing goal kick. So he's looking for Quintero to have more of an impact defensively, especially with that. We lost the ball. Let's counter press and try to win it back quickly. I think he's going to have to, right? Especially yeah. because Albert Elise isn't particularly defensively inclined, but if he is that starter on the right wing, he's he's a guaranteed starter. I mean, barring any huge unforeseen circumstance, he's a game-changing talent on that side. So it's hard to have two freebies in the attack as far as, you know, defensive kind of freeloaders. It's hard to have that and accommodate that truly in any 
successful pressing system. So I think Tab, Tab Ramos is definitely going to want to see some defensive effort out of Quintero. It's just a matter of how much he's willing to give. One of the things I think is cool is not only do we have one former U.S. youth international coach, but two coming into the league this year to show that there's some quality coaches coming up and, and really grabbing a hold of their own tactics. One of them being for the Chicago Fire, their new hire, Rafael Vicky. Yeah, the U.S. US soccer lost a, a couple of prominent youth coaches this offseason with Tab Ramos and Rafael Vicky as well, leaving to the club side in in the same offseason. So Vicky, just to give a little bit of his his background, is a Swiss a Swiss guy. He coached at various youth teams in Switzerland. He moved his way up through the ranks at FC Basel and actually ended up coaching them, their senior team in the Champions League. He matched up uh, against some of Europe's biggest teams, eventually crashing out to Manchester City in the round of 16 in the Champions League. So he has some really, really big game experience, maybe more than any of these other guys that we're talking about. Um, he, he certainly has that background before moving to the United States, moving to, to coach the U-17s. He led them through CONCACAF World Cup qualifying, where the team played really, really well. And then at the World Cup, where they played really, really poorly. World Cups and playing in, in those scenarios are so challenging, right? On a different level than playing day in and day out of a club team. So wh- what did you learn about Vicky in these this time as you started looking at him? How does he like to play? What do you think he's going to do here in Chicago? I went back through and watched a, a couple of his games with, with Basel and then his games with the U-17s and also just went back to my notes from some of those games as I watched them the first time a few months ago at, at Basel in Switzerland. He, he liked to use a 5-2-3 in possession or, or a 5-4-1 defensively. So he had that strong core of center backs in the back that, that allowed his team to be solid defensively. A couple of disciplined blocks of, of five in the back and then four in front of them to stop opposing teams. Well, ideally to stop opposing teams possession structure and then win the ball and quickly counter. Then with the United States U-17s, it was a little bit of a different situation. He used a, a pretty streamlined 4-3-3 in possession, which isn't surprising given how U.S. soccer wants their youth teams to resemble the first team. So it's hard say, to say. 4-3-3 is very U.S. soccer right now and and how they are, they're working as a unit to really implement the same similar tactics on all levels. Exa- that's exactly. And that's such a good point because it's hard to say. Because he has had limited head coaching experience, it's hard to say how much we can take away from that time with the U-17s as far as what his own personal tactical ideas are and what was sort of imposed upon him, for lack of a better term, with that U.S. youth national team setup. But, I mean, regardless, early on in his tenure with the 17s, he had some really, really nice moments. He, He transformed that team briefly in qualifying and had them playing overloading wide areas, playing really fluid soccer that looked a lot like IX at times even though this is against really, really poor opposition. And I think that's the key. He got to the World Cup and things were much, much worse. I don't think his player selection was as good. He struggled to get his guys really competitive. They couldn't win balls in midfield. They couldn't possess as effectively as he wanted to, and they couldn't press either. But I do think those tenants, setting that World Cup aside, I do think those tenants are something that he wants to emulate, at least at Mm -hmm. times with the Chicago Fire team. Mm -hmm. And having determination and like a little bit, it sounds like they lacked a little bit of feistiness. I don't think that's what you're going to see from Chicago Fire. I don't think they're going to lack feistiness as this club has gotten like a whole new rebrand, right? (laughs) Everything about them is like, all right, we're here. We're here to make our mark. How does he make his mark and what he maybe will use his squad to try to do on the field? I think especially given what I've seen of Vicky's teams in the past, I think we could see a couple of different things. 
we're going to see a lot of flexibility. At least Chicago's roster has the potential for that flexibility. They have the personnel to play either three at the back, like three or five at the back, like we saw with Basel, or mm-hmm. four at the back shapes, like we saw with the youth national teams. They have a guy like Francisco Calvo who can play on the left side of a back three, the left side of a two center back pairing, or he can even play as a left back if needed. Um, Jonathan, Johan Kapelhoff as well, right center back, right back. He can play kind of anywhere on the right side of the back line. And then as well, Frankowski, who is either a right winger or he can drop back and play as a wingback. Those three guys especially will allow Vicky, if he wants to, based on the game, to adjust his shape to give him more favorable matchups in the back as well as pushing forward along those wings. Would you see Frankowski more as a like a wing back or a, one of those three center backs and oh, he's, he's definitely he's definitely a wing back or, wing or back. a winger he's got a lot of speed he's he's actually good on the ball going forward I really enjoyed watching him early on last season with Chicago I think he was a huge bright spot for that team and then he fell off a little bit as the season progressed but Frankowski is a guy who can really run up and down that right wing which is kind of why I think he might work well as a wing back and maybe a back five if that's what we see I was just thinking, how many teams in MLS off the top of your head do you think play the three or a five back and do it successfully? Not many. At times, we'll see teams drop into three at the back sets, maybe dropping a center, central defensive midfielder into the back. But it's hard to, to think off the top of my head of any teams that do that consistently. Right. I would just think Atlanta United really did the best, I think, at that for Definitely. a while. They did that. I can't remember if it was last year or the year before. I felt like they... We're doing that a little bit more, but it's a hard tactic to implement in this league for some reason. It really is. We don't see a lot of teams try it, and that's one of the reasons I'm so interested to see if Vicky will do it with the Chicago Fire team. He has the personnel. He has experience doing it as well, and he has the creative midfield talent that if he does decide to go with more of a, a reserve defensive system, that can still influence the attack from that midfield area. New signing Alvaro Medran coming over from La Liga. He's a really, really smooth central midfielder. Not a lot of defending, uh, so that back five is going to have to come in handy or a strong back four. Um, but he's good on the ball. He likes to have the ball at his feet and to spray passes from midfield. And then Georgi Mihailovic as well. Someone we've seen with the United States men's national team in the past. He struggled to really get a footing with Chicago, but with a new head coach coming in, he could play as as either the more attacking half of a double pivot in a 5-2-3 or as one one of the mm-hmm. advanced central midfielders in a 4-3-3. So lots of question marks yeah. with Chicago, but a lot of potential to play some pretty fun, flexible soccer this season. Well, Mihailovic also gives you some more defensive work rate. And so if you have a player like Madron, you can give him more freedom. And that's what you want from your big signings, right? You want them to feel like they can go and create and have a little bit more freedom in attack to see the game differently because a lot of these big signing DP type players just see the game differently than uh, some of the other players within the league. And one last thing on the fire, talking about those two midfield players, Mihailovic can really have his game polished just by maybe watching and observing Madron and working mm. with him in training. I think for for a young American guy, that could be a really helpful thing for him to see a really technical, skillful player who's played in a lot of big games in Europe come in, maybe learn from him, observe in training, and then translate some of those ideas onto the field. Oh, that is like a big thing from a player standpoint, being in those situations where I got to play alongside Kelly Smith, one of the best players to ever play in the women's game, English international and training with her every single day as a fellow center midfielder. I was just like trying to soak it up. So I'm sure he will be soaking it up. 
So moving forward onto our second to last head coach here, uh, a pretty big name, Jordan, yeah. uh, to put it lightly. You know, I think he played yeah. a little bit in the past. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Thierry Henry? Thierry Henry. I think people know Henry a little bit uh, <laughs> coming into Montreal Impact, which I like, you know, speaks French, has that, uh, knows the culture a little bit more than maybe some other coaches that would be coming in to Montreal. And he comes in. I mean, what can you say that really does him justice? Uh, World Cup winner. He scored almost 300 career goals. There was a, a span in his career, Joe, where he scored five years in a row, 20 plus goals in the English Premier League. So this guy knows how to play the game and he knows how to finish. As a manager, it's been a much shorter career. Uh, he was the assistant in for Belgium from 2016 to 2018 and was a part of their World Cup run in Russia where they lost to France in the semifinals, Ooh. who ended up winning. As was, you know. that, was that awkward, I wonder, for Henri coming and coaching against his, uh, his actual remember, country in a big game? Yeah, I kind of remember talk about it and... I think for him, if I recall correctly, he was like, no, like this is my squad. You know, this is who I'm coaching. I want to win. I, I don't care, um, which is that mentality that he has. And I think he's brought to every team that he's been a part of. Uh, then they, they ended up finishing third, the best ever finish Belgium had. And then he moved on just a couple months later to take over at Monaco in, in France. And it was a short stint, uh, just to January. So I don't know, five, five months, uh, four wins, five draws and 11 losses there when he was at Oof. Monaco and not, not great. And coming into a squad at that time in the season and then trying to implement what you like or what, how you want to play, I think can be a really tricky thing. If you're not there at the beginning of preseason and you know, you can't really form what you want your team to look like, it's hard to come in and try to do that. So not saying that's what Henri did, but there he sat um, out of a job right after getting it in Monaco. So uh, just about a year later, not a little bit less, he signs with Montreal. So one of the things that I think is interesting about Thierry Henry is who is he as a coach? We don't. Who is he? I I, I don't know. Do you exactly. know, Jordan? <laughs> I think we're all gonna be really in these first. Um, we're going to see it firsthand, right? As he starts to build his identity of who he wants to be as a coach. And I think it's always really interesting when you have forwards transitioning to coaching. Um, it's just a different mindset when you're on the field and you see it differently from that front runner as hmm. opposed to some other coaches who have seen the game farther back on the field. I think it just brings a different mindset to it. So, um, the things that I think are going to be something that Henri is going to bring to Montreal is when I watched him coaching Monaco, he was playing in a 3-5-2, right? He had uh, players in his team that he could really rely on in those positions. Uh, Tillmans, who now uh, Belgian international, who's now with uh, Lester in the in English Premier League. Tillmans was on his squad at that time. So that's a center midfielder that you can really rely on to keep the ball and hold the ball and, and build up through. And then also on the wings, uh, Benjamin H Hendricks was their outside right center back. So he was really crucial in the way that they played because he had the ability to play make out of that right center back position, but also um, was so strong defensively. So one of the things that I saw uh, in 
that I think that Henri will try to implement is I think he's going to give it a go. I think he's going to try this three five two and see if it works in MLS. Which I mean, you might you might as well. And it's it's like what kind of what, what we were saying before about Chicago. You mentioned Atlanta as a team that's done that three at the back system successfully in the past, and that's that's a great example. Maybe we'll see Chicago try it, and you you do think we could see Henri go for it in Montreal as well. I do, and I, I think. There are a few different uh, reasons why that might work. Uh, there's a lot of players from France, five players from France on this Montreal s- squad. So I think maybe those players have, in my idea of it, is like they've seen this a lot, right? They've seen different tactics being implemented and maybe grew up playing a little bit more of this three back. When we're, when we're talking about the last two coaches, how in the U.S. we've been learning so much about a 4-3-3, and that's really the formation that we've been uh, growing up with. It changed from a 4-4-2 when I was much younger <laughs> to now a 4-3-3. So um, maybe they have a little bit more awareness of what it's like to play out of that three back and uh, with the wing backs in the midfield there with the five. So it'll be interesting to see who they have. They have Rod uh, Rod Fanny, who is an experienced player, 38 years old. That's nice to have someone centrally that you can say, okay, he has the leadership and the ability to organize what he wants in front of him. I don't, he had a tough year last year, only playing three games after coming into the league two years ago and playing nearly every game. So will Fanny be able to play? I think is the first one, but he has the leadership and the organization that they would need if they can play that three back. But then you kind of look higher up on the field. Interesting. Yeah, I was just going to ask what other players they have to make that, that three at the back shape work, especially if they're allocating more resources to that defense. Are there guys up, up top or in midfield that can make the system more of an attacking threat as well? They signed a young guy, Joel Waterman, uh, played in the Canadian Premier League for Calvary FC. He's making that jump to MLS. So I'm not I'm not thinking right away this is a guy that they would put into this three back. But he's one of their latest signings. Uh, but he can play center back, outside back or holding mid, which makes me think, OK, well, if you can play all three of those kind of playing in a three back has different qualities of all three of those positions. So maybe they're looking at him being a depth player in the future or really trying to work him into the lineup as the year goes on. And then they have Raitala, uh, who has international experience, played a number of positions on the back line. So really with Fanny and Raitala, they have a little bit more experience to um, on the international level that I think it gives it that okay for Henri to be like, okay, let's see if this can work. But going forward, they have Piet, who is this holding midfielder, strong, disruptive, uh, can be a good connector in there. And I think that's crucial. If you're playing in a three, five, two, you have to have a holding midfielder who does a lot of the dirty work and cleans up right in front of that back line. But then going forward, they have the players that, I think Henri would want to play in in this 3-5-2. So one of the things I notice about the two front runners is they are pretty disciplined in where their positioning is. And it happens to be between the center back and the outside back on both sides. So when they stay wide like that, even in build up, if the ball is getting build up down the right flank, I saw a lot the left sided forward wouldn't track over to try to be that next ball beyond the sec- the first forward, which you see a lot is who's making that next run, but he would stay wide in between that outside back center back seam on the opposite side. What this does is it builds this gap in the middle of the field that then the attacking midfielders can get into and start to play, make 
in that pocket and beyond, be that runner breaking the back line from midfield to try to thread through the seams. So I'm interested to see if he can implement that because I thought it was an interesting way to play with two front runners. That's that's super interesting and, and pretty unique. I'm not sure I've seen something like that, at least in Major League Soccer, with such a big focus on those late arriving runs from midfield to kind of fill that central forward position. Yeah, I think that's that's really something that's going to be interesting for me to follow along and see if Henri does translate that tactic over to this impact team. Right. And this is what I'm saying is like, we don't know. Like I only had a, a few games, as I said at the beginning, to watch kind of what Henri wants to do so or what he has chosen to do when he was with Monaco so we'll see how that translates here to MLS but I think for the league for everybody I we're just excited to have Thierry Henri a part of it and to get to see it kind of develop in front of our own eyes definitely I think selfishly for me I'm interested to go through watch some of these first games and either write and talk to you about these things and go through some of the tactics that oh. a truly legendary guy is going to talk about I was like you want to interview him because I do too <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll right? see what happens that's what we really want yeah there's a little plug uh, right. for the Montreal PR people if you guys are listening yeah okay um, I think we're on our sixth and final team we are we're on number six Gary Smith, Nashville SC head coach. It's been a long journey to get here, but we're going strong and we're going to finish strong. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think if people know MLS and if they've been in soccer in the U.S. for a while, they know Gary Smith. And a cool thing for him to go from the USL side now to MLS. So what do you know about him and uh, what can you bring us up to speed on? Yeah, like Oscar Pereja in Orlando City. Gary Smith is coming back to MLS after a spell in the league. Previously, he coached the Colorado Rapids from 2008 to 2011 and won the 2010 MLS Cup. Jordan, with your Colorado Rapids. I'm holding up the, the trophy right now. Yeah, it's... it's The cup. I, I hate to tell you, it's not really in your hands. Um, <laughs> listeners can't see. That, Joe. <laughs> Sorry, I exposed you. That's on me. But I was doing it, so you can... You can attest to that. <laughs> she was, folks. She was. So Gary Smith hosted, hoisted that 2010 MLS Cup with the Rapids. He held that trophy um, with Colorado. So coming back to MLS after some time spent abroad and some time in USL, Gary Smith's position, Jordan, as you mentioned, kind of introing Gary Smith, is is a unique one mm-hmm. compared to these other coaches that we've already talked about. Because Nashville is moving from USL up to MLS, he's the only coach coming into the league with the same team or at least some of the same players that he coached last season. Which is interesting, right? Because he now has been with these players for a number of years. Who does he bring with him? Who does he get from uh, other teams and allocation, right? I think that's a really interesting factor that these other coaches don't have to do is build a team um, where there's some investment in these players and you ha- what you've seen over them and their growth over the co- last couple of years as well. Those have got to be hard conversations, right, yeah. to have with these guys that you've seen grow. Smith coached two years with Nashville and USL. He's had some of these players before. Those conversations of, yeah, you're coming to MLS with me, or sorry, you're going to have to find a new home, that's got to be tough. And he did bring up some of those players. Daniel Rios, the striker, probably being the most well-known guy. He actually has a real shot, kind of like Christian Ramirez with Minnesota United or Brian White, Brian White, excuse me, with the Red Bulls. He has a shot to move up from USL to be a real goal scorer in MLS this year. Rios, where did he play college soccer? I don't know. San Jose State? Let me look that up while you keep telling me about him. Yeah, so Daniel Rios is a really interesting player. He kind of defined Nashville's identity 
in USL. I talked to Speedway Soccer's Ben Wright about Nashville's time in USL. One of the things he mentioned was their tendency to cross the ball. In, in 2018, the season before Rios joined the squad, Nashville hit a lot of early crosses into the box, trying to just use that as their main form of creativity. Then Rios came along and, and sort of changed that. He had them playing through the middle more. He had them combining more. And some of those more elaborate, elaborative tactics offensively are something that we could see in, in moderation with Nashville this season. Okay, I'm interested with that, but I'm also going to correct myself. Uh, different Daniel Rios, uh, but this one is a Mexican international, and he is bringing some heat to Nashville. So how do you think, how do you think he's going to help, what, like you were just saying? Like, where is Gary Smith going to find? Is it a middle of the road? Is it trying to switch tactics as he kind of goes? Or how has he built this team to implement what he wants to do? Yeah, Rios is going to be the focal point or, or whatever single striker he's using. Obviously that, that decision still has to be made likely at the top of, of a single striker shape. So Smith told me I got to talk with him this offseason that he, he wants to play a 4-2-3-1 in MLS. But especially from having gone back and watched film in Nashville, it's also possible that we see him rotate into a, a 3-4-3 or a 3-4-1-2 this season, just depending on the situation and depending on how how Smith feels his roster best aligns with with some formation. So Rios or a striker is going to be the attacking focal point along with, with some of the wingers. Renda Leal, Costa Rican international who just faced off against the United States recently, and then David Akam as well. Those are going to be the attacking focal points in wide areas. Then I think Smith's favorite part of this team, you could tell just from talking with him and from watching his teams in the past, is his double pivot. This man oh, loves yeah. a double pivot. He oh, loves yeah. it, Jordan. It's it's so it's impossible for me to envision a Gary Smith team from what I've I've seen and read and heard without this hardworking, dynamic defensive double pivot. I mean, you look at their roster, some of the first two guys they built for this expansion team, they brought in Dax McCarty and Anibal Godoy. Dax McCarty from the fire, Anibal Godoy from the San Jose Earthquakes. These guys are coming in to be the anchor for this team. They're coming in to truly set up the defensive structure. And then after the defensive structure is established in some sort of a 4-4-2 block, that's when we're really going to see the defensive anchor shine and then have them win the ball and spray passes forward into the attack. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit that nail on the head is those two players are so crucial. And I think that that defensive structure is really we've talked a lot about these other coaches and maybe not focused as much on the defensive structure as maybe we should have. But I think you see these other players and you, your eyes automatically go up the field. But when I think Gary Smith and kind of knowing of the conversations that I've had with him in the past and watching his Rapids teams play when he was here, it, there is a definite structure defensively. And those are two really good guys to have help lead and break up attacks if you're defending and start attacks, if you're attacking. And that's, I think something unique about Smith is, is, and that's kind of encapsulated in this double pivot idea of these solid defensive players. He's a realistic guy. He wants ideally to have possession and to press super high off the field and play really energetic, proactive soccer. I mean, every coach wants to have LAFC at their disposal, right? (laughs) But he recognizes that, especially with the position he's in as a new coming as a new head coach of a new MLS team that he can't always have that. So he, he sees that and he understands that sometimes you have to be a little bit more defensive disciplined to give yourself a chance to compete in major league soccer. So however that looks like in terms of the formation, whether that's a four, two, three, one or a three at the back shape, competing is something that he's really preaching to his guys. They're not coming to MLS just to, to be there and to show up. They want to win. Well, when I think about these other teams that we talked about and these other coaches, they just have different, 
things that they have to worry about. But if you're Nashville SC and you're Gary Smith, you're going to ride the momentum of being this new team and really this city being around you and excited to have Major League Soccer that I think the attacking will almost like not take care of itself because that's not the right words to say. But you'll feel the energy to attack in a, a way that you see fit. But if you don't start with a defensive structure, which I think it sounds like that was really a lot of your conversation with him, then you're not able to harness that energy of being a new club in this league and really use it to your advantage. Yeah, that's. I think that's spot on. He understands the, nece- the, the necessity of defending, and he also understands that he has attacking talent to work with. He has some guys that can really make plays in the attacking third. So I think that's less of his focus in the attacking end. And he's, he's putting more of his time and energy into teaching his guys to be defensively disciplined so that they can be in games and hopefully not be leaking goals like mm-hmm. FC Cincinnati did for large stretches last season as a yeah. new expansion team coming from USL. Yeah. Well, th- there we have it. Six new head coaches. I shouldn't say all new. New and familiar. New and <laughs> familiar. That was fun. Uh, I feel like a lot of good takeaways there. And I hope that we provided enough insight into who these coaches kind of have been and our hopes for who they will continue to develop into as they take over these new teams. Because I think that's one of the things that we're most excited about is, yeah, we, we know what we know, but like we're excited to see what's on tap for these these teams. Absolutely. I think one thing that I was just going to touch on is we're going to watch these teams play this season. This is yeah. a good good prep work for both of us and for our listeners to have some background and some things to look for specifically when they watch these teams play, when they watch NYCFC, when they watch you know Nashville, whichever of these teams we're talking about. But we're going to see a lot of development throughout the season. The way one team starts, they might not end that way. There might be some sort of tactical epiphany that one of these coaches has, and we'll be right along the way to try to cover that and, and to communicate it to each other and to our listeners as well. I love it. I love it. That was fun. That was fun. Jordan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, and and we'll be back again soon. It was fun, Joe. We've got a lot more where this came from. Thanks for listening, everybody. 